Please bow your heads once more with me as we go to the Lord in prayer to ask his blessing on the public preaching of his word. Let's pray together. Lord, we confess that we are ignorant. And we have often remained willfully ignorant of your word. Would you please forgive us? We have often been stiff-necked against your clear commands to us and your desires for us. So would you soften our hearts now? Would you convince us afresh that your yoke is easy, your burden is light, and there's no reason for us to be stiff-necked against you, against your soul, your son, Christ Jesus, to soften our souls and give us a holy appetite, a great appetite for your word even now. Make us hungry to feed on the bread of life. Would you have told us that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from your mouth? So speak, for your servants are listening. For Jesus' sake, amen. In the criminal justice system, the people are represented by two separate yet equally important groups. The police who investigate crime and the district attorneys who prosecute the offenders. These, an old sitcom opens, are their stories. I like those old Law and Order episodes. Maybe you remember them. Detective Lenny Briscoe's one-liners, Jack McCoy's courtroom moralizings, the ever-faithful sound of the dun-dun right after that opening line. There's a definite pattern to those shows. From the discovery of the body to the Lenny Briscoe one-liner that took you into the commercial to the investigation of who did it, to the prosecution of the defendant. But it never got old. Luke is going to unfold for us this morning a real-life courtroom drama in Acts 7, 1 through 60. That's right, I said 1 through 60, not 16. (laughs) 1 through 60, we're in it for the long haul, baby. This is all one sermon. Stephen designs his defense on the pattern of Old Testament Israel's repeated rebellion against God. He's going to win the argument. And he's going to lose his case. But there is a higher court, a higher judge looking on and even presiding from heaven as we'll see by the end. We'll remember from last week in chapter 6, verses 11 to 13, that the religious court accused Stephen of, a, of holding God in contempt by defaming Moses, the temple, and the law. All the while, they think they are the ones honoring their Jewish heritage. Stephen then is answering the high priest's question in chapter 7, verse 1, are these things so? Is what they're saying about you true? But Stephen is not just saying back to them, these things are not so, I'm innocent. He's not just defending himself. He's indicting them. This is better than a law and order. He's saying, you guys are the ones who are actually guilty of everything you've accused me of doing. Stephen's speech is not a mere response to their charges. It's a reversal of those charges back onto not only his prosecutors, but his judges. This speech is not even an attempt at arbitration, as if Stephen were saying, guys, guys, I'm just like you, so let's dial down the rhetoric a few notches and find some common ground in our Jewish roots. He is not saying that. 
It's the opposite. It is a recounting of Israel's disobedience and guilt in a way that convicts Stephen's accusers of their charges against him. You guys are guilty of what you're saying I'm guilty of. He is finding common ground, that's for sure. But not between himself and his opponents. He's finding common ground between his opponents and disobedient Israel. And he's separating himself from both of them. Stephen's saying, you guys think you're honoring your heritage by charging me with blasphemy? Oh, you're honoring your heritage, all right. Let's take a look at that heritage. You're acting exactly like your fathers. And then he gives them this selective history of Israel that highlights how his fellow Jews are repeating the sins of their fathers from the Old Testament. From Abraham and circumcision to Joseph and his brothers to Moses and the Israelites to the golden calf to the tent of witness and the temple of Solomon, Stephen is weaponizing Israel's history, not just against his accusers, but against his judges. And we will see by the end, Jesus agrees with Stephen and Stephen's use of Scripture from heaven. Just as the ancients received circumcision in body, but not in heart, so you, Stephen says, have an uncircumcised heart. As the ancients rejected God's chosen redeemers in Joseph and Moses, so now you're rejecting Jesus, who Joseph and Moses foreshadowed. Like the ancients idolized the golden calf as the work of their hands, so you are idolizing the temple as the work of your hands, he's saying. As the ancients received the law only to break it by their stubborn idolatry, immorality, and murder of the prophets, so you did to Jesus, and now you're getting ready to do to me too. Oh, yes. Yes, yes, you, you, you are sons of your fathers, all right. Look at the similarity. Moses, temple, law, God, you, you're accusing me of blaspheming these things? No, 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 you, you are the one doing that. Just like your forefathers did. True to form. You're just as stiff-necked as that golden calf that they worshipped. Like fathers, like sons, and the family resemblance is not flattering. The point of this whole thing, before we read it, is that rejecting Jesus repeats Israel's rebellion against God. Rejecting Jesus repeats Israel's rebellion against God. It's not the Christians who are blaspheming the God of the Old Testament. It's the unbelieving Jews who are blaspheming God by not believing in the Christ that was prophesied and foreshadowed in Joseph and Moses. So this morning we're going to consider five countercharges. And those countercharges are going to structure our time together in God's Word this morning as our main points. Five countercharges all of which are responding to their charge of blasphemy against Moses, God, the law, and the temple as they're arraigning Stephen for all that stuff, all of which is going to clarify who's really on the wrong side of history. It's not Stephen, and it's not Christians. It's unbelievers. So follow along with me in your own Bibles as I read out loud for us Acts 7. And the high priest said, Are these things so? And Stephen said, Brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran and said to him, Go out from your land and from your kindred and go into the land that I will show you. Then he went out from the land of the Chaldeans and lived in Haran. And after his father died, God removed him from there into this land into which, in which you are now living. Yet he gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot's length, but promised to give it to him as a possession and to his offspring after him, though he had no child. And God spoke to this effect, that his offspring would be sojourners in a land belonging to others and would enslave them and afflict them for 400 years. But I will judge the nation that they serve, said God, and after that they shall come out and worship me in this place. And he gave them the covenant of circumcision. And so Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day. And Isaac became the father of Jacob and Jacob of the twelve patriarchs. And the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt. 
But God was with him and rescued him out of all of his afflictions and gave him favor and wisdom before Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who made him ruler over Egypt and over all of his household. Now there came a famine throughout all Egypt and Canaan and great affliction, and our fathers could find no food. But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent out our fathers on their first visit. And on the second visit, Joseph made himself known to his brothers, and Joseph's family became known to Pharaoh. And Joseph sent and summoned Jacob, his father, and all his kindred, 75 persons in all. And Jacob went down into Egypt, and he died, and he and our fathers. And they were carried back to Shechem and laid in the tomb that Abraham had bought for a sum of silver from the sons of Hamor in Shechem. But as the time of the promise drew near, which God had granted to Abraham, the people increased and multiplied in Egypt until there arose over Egypt another king who did not know Joseph. He dealt shrewdly with our race and forced our fathers to expose their infants so that they would not be kept alive. At this time, Moses was born, and he was beautiful in God's sight, and he was brought up for three months in his father's house. And when he was exposed, Pharaoh's daughter adopted him and brought him up as her own son. And Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and he was mighty in his words and deeds. When he was 40 years old, it, became, it came into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them being wronged, he defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. He supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand. But they did not understand. And on the following day, he appeared to them as they were quarreling and tried to reconcile them, saying, Men, you are brothers. Why do you wrong each other? But the man who was wronging his neighbor thrust him aside and said, Who made you a ruler and judge over us? Do you want to kill me today as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? And at this retort, Moses fled and became an exile in the land of Midian, where he became the father of two sons. Now when 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai in a flame of fire and a bush. And when Moses saw it, he was amazed at the sight. And as he drew near to look, there came the voice of the Lord. I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob. And Moses trembled and did not dare to look. Then the Lord said to him, Take off the sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their groaning, and I have come down to deliver them. And now come, I will send you to Egypt. The, this Moses, whom they rejected, saying, Who made you a ruler and judge? This man... God sent as both ruler and redeemer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. This man led them out, performing wonders and signs in Egypt at the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. This is the Moses who, this, who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your brothers. This is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai and with our fathers. He received living oracles to give to us. Our fathers refused to obey him, but thrust him aside. And in their hearts, they turned to Egypt, saying to Aaron, Make for us gods who will go before us. As for this Moses, who led us out from the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And they made a calf in those days and offered a sacrifice to the idol and were rejoicing in the works of their hands. But God turned away and gave them over to the worship of the hosts of heaven, as it is written in the book of the prophets. Did you bring to me slain beasts and sacrifices during the forty years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? You took up the tent of Moloch, and the star of your god Raphon, the images that you made to worship, and I will send you into exile beyond Babylon. Our fathers had the tent of witness in the wilderness, just as he who spoke to Moses directed him to make it according to the pattern that he had seen. Our fathers, in turn, brought it in with Joshua when they dispossessed the nations that God drove out before our fathers. So it was until the days of David, who found favor in the sight of God and asked to find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built a house for him. Yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands, as the prophet says. Heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? And what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one whom you have now betrayed and murdered, you who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. Now when they heard these things, they were enraged. 
and they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witness laid down, witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. First countercharge. Casting off God's covenant. You see, overall point of Stephen's sermon, rejecting Jesus repeats Israel's rebellion against God. As your fathers did, so do you. This first countercharge is casting off God's covenant. Having read the whole sermon, there's a reason Stephen begins with God giving Abraham the covenant of circumcision. But it's not just that the circumcision is where Israel's story starts. It's where Stephen's sermon ends. In 7, 1 through 8, God gave the covenant of circumcision. That simple word, gave, will come back to haunt Stephen's hearers. At first, God did not give Abraham a foot of land in Canaan, but promised to give it to his great-grandchildren, even though Abraham was still childless at the time. God did, however, give Abraham the covenant of circumcision. But where did, the, where did this covenant end up? What happened to it? It ends up being broken. God would eventually tell Israel in Deuteronomy 10.16, Circumcise your heart and no longer be stubborn. But God also knew that they would not be willing to circumcise their own hearts. It would be too painful, too costly. They would never cut out the defiling, sinful nature of their own hearts. No one performs heart surgery on themselves, whether physically or spiritually. So God said in Deuteronomy 30, verse 6, The Lord God will circumcise your heart so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, as they had been commanded to in Deuteronomy 6. And yet, as late as Jeremiah's ministry, it still hadn't happened. Jeremiah 9.26 Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will punish all those who are circumcised merely in the flesh. Egypt, Judah, Edom, the sons of Ammon, Moab, and all who dwell in the desert who cut the corners of their hair. For all these nations are uncircumcised, and all the house of Israel are uncircumcised in heart. That's the issue. They had cast off God's covenant. They didn't take to heart what the old covenant meant. And so it remained in Stephen's day. That's why they refused to see their need for Jesus as their righteous ruler and redeemer. They didn't think they needed a crucified Messiah to suffer for their sins. And that's why when Stephen's done telling Israel's story in verse 50, he moves to his first application point in chapter 7, verse 51. And this is a doozy of a move. It's a wraparound conclusion that refers back to his introduction here in verses 1 to 8. You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears. All this history... And nothing's changed. You always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Resisting the Holy Spirit, notice in Stephen's words, is not, hey, you're not willing to speak in tongues. Hey, you don't raise your hands enough when you're singing at church. Resisting the Holy Spirit is not having, an uncircumcised, not having a circumcised heart. You haven't had a change of heart at all about anything and especially not about your sin or your sinfulness or your need for a Redeemer. That's resisting the Holy Spirit. Yes, they were the elect of God, circumcised physically and proud of it. But that was useless if they didn't see the spiritual point of physical 
circumcision as Paul picks it up in Romans 2.28. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter. And Paul said again in Colossians 2.11 that this inward circumcision, the one made without hands, is accomplished only in Christ by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with Him in baptism. God's sovereign election of Abraham that Stephen recounts in chapter 7, 1-8 through 8, was for the purpose of heart change. Cut out the heart of stone. Cut out what defiles. God gave Israel that covenant not so that they could find false security in it, but so that they would reflect on the true meaning underneath it. They needed to cut out the defiled heart, the sinful nature that rebelled against God, and they needed new and clean hearts. But Israel didn't want what God gave. And isn't that still our problem today? We don't want what God gives. They didn't want the holiness and newness of heart that circumcision symbolized. They only wanted the feeling of self-importance that God's election gave them. I'm special because I have this ethnicity and this special relationship with God. And He gave me that and He didn't give the Assyrians that or the Babylonians that. I'm special. But that, glorying in the symbol without the inward reality of a new heart, that's what earned them exile. That's what got them kicked out of the promised land. God promised to give Israel the land of Canaan, but first they'd be slaves in Egypt. And yet no first century Jew could hear that part of Stephen's sermon without lamenting the Roman occupation of the promised land in Stephen's day. They were, for all intents and purposes, exiles in their own land. Why? Well, in the context of Stephen's sermon, it was because their hearts were uncircumcised. They had no change of heart towards God, towards His law, towards their sinfulness, towards God's holiness, or towards their need for a ruler-redeemer that would keep the law for them and endure the Lord's curse in their place and for their sins. They had no heart for that. That is blasphemy. It's not Stephen who's blaspheming. It's the Jews who had the outward sign without the inward reality, thereby making a mockery of the covenant of circumcision itself. That's blasphemy. That's taking God's name in vain. Calling yourself by His name, calling yourself His people, having no desire to obey and no conviction of sin when you don't. That's blasphemy. That is absurd, worthless religion. And yet that circumcised heart only comes through faith in the Christ that Stephen preached. What blasphemes God then is Christless, outward moralism and religion without inward heart transformation. And that is just as much a danger in the churches as it was in Old Testament Israel. Believing in a crucified and risen Messiah like Stephen did, that's not what blasphemes God. What defames and insults God is rejecting the renewed heart He offers you in Christ and the gospel because you assume 
that your outward morality can satisfy God's moral and spiritual demands when it doesn't even come close. Friend, do you have a new heart? If not, then your outward morality and religion is just putting lipstick on a pig. True biblical religion is a change of heart and a change of how you hear God's word so that you are no longer uncircumcised either in heart or ears. But you hear God's word rightly and you respond to it with a heart that's tender, with godly sorrow for your sins, contrition and repentance. Second, second countercharge, rejecting God's redeemers, rejecting God's redeemers, Joseph and Moses. Now you got to think, why is he being so selective? I mean, the history of Israel is very complicated, very long. It involves a lot more than what he is mentioning. He's actually abbreviated the history of Israel. You're welcome. It's only 60 verses. <laughs> so why skip over Isaac and Jacob to get to Joseph? I mean, Isaac was the son of the promise, for goodness sake. Well, it's because of how relevant Joseph's bio is to who Jesus is and what the Jews did to Jesus. The patriarchs sold their own brother Joseph into foreign slavery only to see him redeem them from the famine by the very power he rose to wield through their selling him down the river. He never would have been able to redeem them if they hadn't first sold him. The patriarchs rejected the one brother destined to redeem them. Sound familiar? Joseph's storyline anticipates Jesus' storyline. In verse 10, God rescued Joseph out of all of his affliction and gave him favor and wisdom before Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who made him ruler over Egypt and over all his household. God rescued Joseph, and he was made ruler over all the land. Just so. God rescued Jesus, gave him favor and wisdom, made him ruler over all God's kingdom, and through the very act of his countrymen selling him out, redeemed his people. Subtext. That's why Stephen is recounting this history. That's what he wants them to get out of it. It's implicit. That's why he chooses to focus on Joseph. Patriarchs also, though, who sold Joseph, they prefigure the Jews who crucified Jesus. And that's part of Stephen's point, too. Hey, you're not acting like Joseph. You're acting like his brothers. That's what you did to Jesus. And yet God worked redemption for his people through Jesus' rejection, just like he worked redemption for his people through Joseph's rejection. And not just Joseph's, even Moses' rejection. Ah, this is the kicker. Man, did Stephen's contemporaries love Moses. They defended Moses to the hilt. Even Moses, though, the very one they think they're supporting by persecuting Stephen, was rejected by their own fathers before he redeemed them. 7, 17 to 23, Moses is wise and powerful in Egypt, just like God the Son was wise and powerful in heaven. Moses goes to visit his people in the fields, like Christ coming down from the throne of heaven to visit his people on earth. 7, 24 to 29, Israel's rejection of Moses' first attempt to save his people only sees Moses return to redeem them from the Egyptian slavery. Moses avenges the mistreated Israelite by executing the Egyptian taskmaster vigilante style, thinking they would understand that God is giving them salvation through His hand. But they didn't get it. 
any more than the Jews understood that God was giving them salvation through Jesus. The next day, Moses tries to reconcile two arguing Jews, but one of the men thrust him aside, saying, Who made you ruler and judge over us? That action and question from a single Jew foreshadowed Israel's national rebellion against Moses later in Stephen's sermon. Who made you ruler and judge over us? They ask it later. And what a question is that? Who made you ruler and judge over us? God. God made Moses ruler and judge for you to redeem you from Israel. That's who. You're asking a rhetorical question like you don't think it can be answered when the answer is all too obvious. Who made you ruler and judge over us? God made Moses ruler and judge. God made Jesus ruler and judge. Speaking of which, verses 30 to 34, God's first appearance to Moses totally undercuts the Jews' theology of sacred space in the temple. Did you notice this? The land Moses was standing on when he saw the burning bush, God called holy ground. But where was that ground? Not in the temple, not even in the promised land. It was in Midian. It was there in the Midianite desert that God commissioned Moses as ruler, judge, and redeemer, and yet it is this same God-appointed Moses whom they rejected. They denied him, same as the Jews did to Jesus, according to Peter's sermon in Acts 3.13. You denied him. Stephen's saying the same thing about Moses and now about Jesus. You denied him. This Moses whom Israel denied by saying, who made you a ruler and judge? Is the Moses God himself appointed as ruler and redeemer? God made Moses ruler and redeemer just as God is the one who made Jesus ruler and redeemer. And Israel denied Jesus just like the forefathers denied Moses like father, like son. Now let's scan verses 35 to 38 again and notice how many times the word this occurs. I know it's a really general word, but man, he keeps on repeating it with reference to Moses. This Moses, in verse 35. Again in verse 35. This man, God sent. Verse 36. This man led them out. Verse 37. This is the Moses. Verse 38. This is the one. It climaxes here in verse 40. As for this Moses, derogatory, who led us out from the land of Egypt, we don't know what has become of him. So Stephen, Luke as the author, they're using this Moses, this Moses, this Moses as confirmatory. Hey, he's the one who God sent. It's him, same one. But in the quote from the rejection of Moses, this Moses, this guy, this chump, this deserter, we have no idea what happened to him. When they know exactly what happened to him. He went up the mountain to receive the law. It's derogatory. Dare I say, defaming. Blasphemous. Again, it's the forefathers who blaspheme, who denigrate, who slander Moses' name. Not Stephen. Not the Christians. But this phrase, this one, this man, has been used in the apostolic preaching throughout Acts so far to refer to Jesus himself. 111, the angels say, this Jesus will come in the same way you saw him go. 223, this Jesus delivered up, you crucified. 236, this Jesus whom you crucified. 411, this Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you. The Jews resent it in, verse, in chapter 5, verse 28. We strictly charge you not to teach in this name, and you intend to bring this man's blood on us. And again, the Jews say it themselves, 6.14. We've heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place. 
Then later in 1338, let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man, Jesus, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. 17.3, Paul says it again to the Thessalonians. This Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. And here Stephen applies this man to Moses as a precursor and pattern of this man, Jesus. Stephen talks about Moses like Peter and Paul talk about Jesus. There's a point to that. Moses is prefiguring Jesus. Jesus fulfills everything Moses was pointing you towards. And you think you're the one honoring Moses and I'm the one blaspheming Moses by believing in Jesus? It's the other way around. Because this man, Jesus, is the fulfillment of that man, Moses. That's how it works. 736, this Moses, appointed by God, denied by Israel, is the Moses who led Israel out with signs and wonders in Egypt at the Red Sea and through the wilderness. 737, this Moses, appointed by God, denied by Israel, he's the one who prophesied the Christ, the Messiah, the prophet like Moses in Deuteronomy 18.15. You say you believe in Moses, you say I'm blaspheming Moses. I'm the one who believes in the Christ that Moses was prophesying to you. 738. This Moses, appointed by God, denied by Israel, is the Moses who gathered the church, the assembly at Sinai to receive the law as given by God through angels. This Moses, 39 to 40, is the Moses the fathers did not want to obey, but they rejected him together like the individual Israelite Rejected him in verse 27. And they returned in their hearts to Egypt. The fathers themselves denied Moses, insulted Moses, rejected Moses, refused to follow Moses. And who is it now that is denying the prophet like Moses, whom Moses himself prophesied? It's not Stephen. It's the unbelieving Jews. That's the point. Yeah, Stephen says, you're faithful to the Old Testament, all right. You're faithful to rejecting God's chosen redeemers. You're doing to Jesus just what your fathers did to Moses and Joseph. Christians are not the ones defaming God's ruler redeemer. The Christless forefathers are the ones who have been doing that for millennia. And again, like fathers, like sons. And this is where Stephen ends in verse 52. Which of the prophets, beginning with Moses... Did your fathers not persecute? You tell me one prophet who your fathers didn't give a hard time all the way to the grave. And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one whom you have now betrayed and murdered. Now I know it doesn't come through in English, but that word for betrayed is a give word. You gave him over to And that is biting irony. For all that God gave Abraham and Israel, the covenant of circumcision, salvation through Moses' hand, the land of Canaan, the Jewish leaders repaid God by giving over his chosen redeemer to be murdered at the hands of foreigners. Nice. Who's committing blasphemy now? Friends, Christless religion is rebellious religion. True biblical religion submits to our personal need of Jesus as ruler, redeemer. You cannot be reconciled to God. If God, if you are as jealous of Jesus as the patriarchs were of Joseph. If you don't want Jesus ruling over you, like Joseph was prophesied to rule over his brothers, you can't be reconciled to God. If you think you're going to do a better job of ruling your life than Jesus, you're just like the Jewish forefathers rejecting Joseph and Moses. 
You can't be reconciled to God if you resent Jesus as ruler and judge like the Jews resented Moses in the wilderness. God made Jesus ruler and judge. To reject Jesus is to tell God you don't need or want the one whom God sent to save and rule you. The whole pattern of the Bible then is that God's chosen redeemers are rejected by God's people before they redeem God's people. Joseph is exhibit A, Moses is exhibit B, and Jesus is the example par excellence. Christians recognize that Jesus fits the pattern of Moses as God's appointed redeemer, rejected by man, but then redeeming God's people in order to worship him in spirit and in truth. And that leads us to our third countercharge, corrupting God's worship. Corrupting God's worship. Remember here again, Stephen is charged with insulting the temple where God was worshipped. You're speaking against the temple. But who's truly guilty of that? Well, we discover the real culprit through Stephen's telling of Israel's history in verses 39 to 50. Israel's corruption of God's worship started before they ever even left Mount Sinai. You realize that? That's where they made the golden calf. They sacrificed to the idol and were rejoicing in the works of their hands. What a phrase for self-willed worship. Rejoicing in the works of their hands. Remember that phrase. It's going to come back. For now, Stephen clarifies that God rejected Israel for building the golden calf. But God turned away and gave them over to the worship of the hosts of heaven. As it's written in Amos 5. And the word for worship there in verse 42 of chapter 7, that's the same word for worship back in verse 7 where God told Abraham that his descendants would worship God in this place. So after all God had given them in the covenant of circumcision, salvation through Moses, the land of Canaan, God had to give them over to false worship as discipline for the false worship of the golden calf. The point of the quote from Amos 5 is that God's faithfulness to Israel was not based on their sacrifices because they didn't give Him any sacrifices. They sacrificed to the stars. God's faithfulness to them was based on His mercy. They didn't bring Him sacrifices for those 40 years in the wilderness. What they did was corrupted God's worship and used the tabernacle or something like it to worship the stars of heaven rather than the God of heaven. Look there in verse 43. You took up the tent of Moloch, the star of Rephon, the images that you made to worship. So from the time of the tabernacle, it was Israel corrupting God's worship, first with the golden calf, then with the tent of Moloch and the star of Rephon. Then Stephen mentions the tent of witness in the wilderness, the portable tabernacle, that foreshadowed the stationary temple, but when Stephen gets to the building of the temple itself, notice he doesn't emphasize its grandeur or stability. He emphasizes its inadequacy. Yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands. Made by hands. That's the phrase he used for the golden calf. They rejoiced in the works of their hands. What's he saying? Stephen's saying that the Jews in his day were doing with the temple what the ancients were doing with the golden calf. Rejoicing in the works of their hands. And if you don't think that's what he's saying, then the burden of proof is on you to figure out why in the world do they want to kill him at the end of this sermon. That's why. That's why. They were worshiping the experience 
and material trappings of temple worship, not God. They were worshiping their contribution to worship, not God. What Israel did with the golden calf, Stephen's contemporaries were doing with the temple. They rejoiced in the works of their hands. They were rejoicing in, the con- in, the, in their conception of worship, in their creation, their contribution and construction of worship, and in doing so, they were not just idolizing their own creation and experience, they were domesticating God. They were confining their conception of God to the temple as if it were functioning as a cage for divinity. But remember from verse 33, that God appeared to Moses in the desert of Midian telling him that the ground in that place was holy because God was there. That wasn't even in the promised land, much, in the, much less in the temple. The very history of Israel undermines the Jewish theology of the temple as if that's the only place God could live and therefore as if it could be never, never be violated. God never needed the temple and God himself could never be confined to the temple. Why? Because of the quote from Isaiah 66.1 and verse 49 where God himself had said, Heaven, all heaven is my throne. That's all it is. Heaven is what I sit on, and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? And here comes the kicker. Did not my hand make all these things? I know what your hands made, the golden calf in the temple. But my hand made everything that you used to make with your hands. So where are you going to put me? What are you going to build for me? You rejoiced in the work of your hands when it was my hand that made all the gold that your hands fashioned into the calf. It was my hand that made the materials of the tabernacle and the temple. Even the phrase, my hand, is just a human way of God describing himself because He, of course, is an infinite intelligent spirit who does not have a body like men, and he is so transcendent that all heaven is his throne, and the whole earth is nothing but his ottoman. Now, if that's how great God really is, then who's the one blaspheming the temple? Not Stephen. It's the Jews who treat the temple like a golden calf, or a golden cage. True biblical religion, then, does not try to domesticate God by confining Him to a metal or a mental cage or image, or by confining Him to a place like a building or a geopolitical location. True biblical religion does not worship the emotional experience of worship, or the tangible trappings of worship, or what our experience of worship says about us and how that makes us look or feel superior to others. The Bible shows us here that we have an inveterate tendency to idolize the experience and accessories of worship. Things we can see, hear, taste, touch, smell, be impressed by. Things we can sense. And so we should ask ourselves, am I worshiping the feeling of worship? The experience of worship? The trappings of worship that we can see and hear and feel? See, this is why we have to be careful not only about the what of worship, but about the how of worship. Am I really worshiping God in spirit and in truth? Am I worshiping my experience of worship and how worship makes me feel about myself? See, this is why simplicity in corporate worship 
is a core value, or should be. Look, look at what the Jews did with the temple. When they had something to look at and touch and smell and see, the complexity, the creativity, the beauty, yeah, that's what the human heart does. The human heart is an idol factory. It will idolize even the accessories of worshiping the true God, even when he's the God that commanded the accessories. Don't think you are immune to that. Just because you're not an Old Testament Jew. Complexity and creativity in worship tend to draw our attention away from God in Christ in order to rejoice in the work of our hands. And that turns worship into idolatry. Sometimes without us even recognizing it. More importantly, Christless, Christless worship is idolatrous worship. Christ alone is the authorized image of God and the temple of God, the only place where the holy God meets men. Jesus is the place of Christian worship. He is the temple. Outside Jesus, there is no place for sinners to meet safely with God. And there is no way for us to know who God is outside the Christ in whom God reveals himself. No one has ever seen God but the Son of God, Christ. He has explained him. Christ has exegeted God for us. So we've seen now Stephen accusing his judges of casting off God's covenant, rejecting God's ruler, redeemers, corrupting his worship. Now we'll see briefly and fourthly how Stephen has reversed the charge of disdaining God's law. Disdaining God's law. Very briefly in verse 38, from Luke's narrative perspective, it's the Jewish leaders who disdain God's law because they're using false testimony to convict Stephen of blasphemy. Man, if that's not meta, I don't know what is. You're... You're lying? You're, you're disobeying the ninth commandment to string up an innocent man? Who's committing blasphemy against the law now? You guys. But from Stephen's perspective, he reminds his judges in chapter 7, verse 38, this Moses received living oracles, the law, to give to us, and our fathers refused to obey him, but thrust him aside, and in their hearts they returned to Egypt. Stephen associates Israel's rebellion against Moses with rebellion against the law itself. They didn't want to obey Moses or the law that Moses mediated. And that charge leads to the climax of Stephen's sermon in chapter, in chapter 7, verse 52. You who receive the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. Let's pray. That's the end of his sermon. You who received the law but did not keep it. You didn't keep the law any better than your fathers did, Stephen says. They broke the law by their uncircumcised hearts, their rebellion against Moses, their false worship. And now you have broken the law by your uncircumcised hearts, your rejection of Jesus, and your idolizing of the temple. You're doing just what your fathers did. You see? That's his logic. That's the rhetoric of the sermon. And yet Stephen's greater point about the law is that Christless morality is really immorality. To keep on rejecting Jesus like they're doing is to commit blasphemy against the law by demeaning it to the point where you think you can keep it. Oh, it's just, I don't have to, I got to keep from murdering somebody? I think I can do that. No, no, no. You've got to keep from hating people. You've got to keep from being angry at people. Only Jesus can keep the law to God's satisfaction. Senator, do you really think you are obeying the holy law of God from your whole heart to God's glory, no matter what the cost to yourself? Because that's what the law requires. Perfect, personal, perpetual obedience. 
Only one of us has ever done that, and his name is Jesus. Faith in Jesus, then, is how you honor the law in both its extent and its intent, its outward obligations and its attitudinal, motivational, emotional obligations. You don't honor the law by saying in this kind of flippant way, yeah, I can do that. No, you can't. You cannot do this and live. I might as well say I can dunk on LeBron as say that I can obey God's law in a way that satisfies him. To say you can dunk on an eight-foot rim, as I have done, doesn't mean that you can dunk, period. If I say to you, I can dunk, and what I mean in my heart is, I can dunk on an eight-foot rim. I can dunk. You're like, You're being ridiculous. And to say you can obey God's law to your satisfaction doesn't mean you can obey God's law to God's satisfaction. Those are different. You're only dunking on an eight-foot rim. The standard is ten, but God's rim is not adjustable. And you don't have a trampoline. And only Jesus can jump that high. And to spurn God's covenant, God's redeemers, God's worship, and God's law like this is to scorn God himself. And Jesus takes that personally, and he will not take it sitting down. And that leads to our fifth and final countercharge. You're spurning the heavenly judge by executing his witness. You're spurning the heavenly judge by executing his witness. Verses 54 to 60, to spurn God's covenant, his redeemers, his worship, his law, is not only to spurn spurn God the Father, but to spurn Jesus himself as Savior and Judge. That's because God's covenant, his redeemers, his worship, and his law all point to Jesus. And after Stephen's sharp application of his sermon to Jewish unbelief, In verses 51 to 53, the Jewish leaders are so angry. In verses 54 to to 60, they're grinding their teeth at him. But Stephen is so full of the Spirit that he sees Jesus as the Son of Man standing, standing at the right hand of God. Jesus' posture there in heaven is important, so important that Luke repeats it. The Father's promise to the Son in Psalm 110.1 was, sit, not stand, sit. Make yourself comfortable on the throne. Sit at my right hand until I make all your enemies a footstool for your feet. Ephesians 1.20, God raised Jesus from the dead and seated him, seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Hebrews 1.3, after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Why is Jesus standing Why is he standing? And why does Luke repeat it for you so you notice it? He stands, first of all, to testify to Stephen's testimony, as if taking the stand himself to vindicate Stephen. Hey, I'm on his side. I stand to vindicate him. I know what you're doing to him. This is wrong. He's right. You should listen to him. He also stands in judgment of the Jews' wrongful prosecution of Stephen. He stands against them, but Jesus is also honoring Stephen. Just as God said in 1 Samuel 2.30, those who honor me, I will honor. Can you imagine this? Think about what he's doing. He sees what Stephen is enduring, and he stands up from his heavenly throne to look down and acknowledge, I see you. I see you, I see what they're doing to you, I know, I know. And I'm not taking it sitting down. Jesus is pleased with Stephen's preaching, and Jesus knows what it's going to cost him. They do to Stephen what they did to Jesus. They took him outside the city like they did to Jesus, and they execute him 
And in a point of dramatic contrast, as the Christians laid down their proceeds of their sales at the feet of the apostles to give to the poor, back in chapter 4 and 5, here the Jews lay down their garments at the feet of Saul while they stoned Stephen. Stephen now follows in Jesus' suffering steps. Verse 59, Stephen says, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit as Jesus committed his spirit to God's hands on the cross. Notice the divinity of Jesus that Stephen assumes. He doesn't commit his soul to God the Father. He commits his soul to Jesus. To Jesus. In the same way, Jesus committed his spirit to God. And in verse 60, Stephen prays forgiveness for his executors as Jesus did from the cross. What we see here in Stephen's death is that true biblical religion suffers not only with Christ or because of Christ, but suffers like Christ, suffers like him, with the attitude of Christ. Ready to forgive his persecutors the moment they repent desiring their repentance and not their damnation. Jesus stands for that kind of biblical religion. He stands to testify to Stephen's wrongful death, and he stands still today to testify to the wrongful persecution of all those who stand for his truth and righteousness in this world. Just a few application thoughts before we close. Christless religion offends God because it is self-reliant. Christless religion ultimately offends God because it is self-reliant. Religion that rejects your need for a Redeemer in Jesus' blood and righteousness, that's moralism. That offends God. A religion that makes you feel that you can and should save yourself by your own moral and ceremonial conservatism, that disparages God's holiness and His law. A religion that makes you think you can outweigh your own sins with your own sacrifices. That offends God's righteousness. A religion that rests on being born into a religious family that disdains God's sovereign mercy and election. A religion that encourages you to worship the feeling and experience of worship, the emotional trappings and tangible surroundings of worship, rather than worshiping God himself. That offends God. That's idolatry. And a religion that tries to domesticate God to a cage of time and place, that holds him in contempt. Can't do that. Not to this God. To approach God or his word in any of these Christless ways, that, that is blasphemy. That is holding God in contempt. Believing in a crucified and risen Messiah is not what slanders God. What slanders God is to think you don't need a crucified and risen Messiah to satisfy God's righteous wrath over your sins. That is to slander God's righteousness, to presume on His grace, to disdain His only begotten Son. God takes that personally. And we Christians are no better when we think we can begin with God's grace through faith in this Jesus alone and then continue by our own merit and works as if we think that's what God expects and we think that's what we can offer. That also holds God in contempt. What slanders God is to think that you and I are good enough for Him without His Christ living to work out a perfect righteousness for us, dying to atone for our sins and rising for our everlasting vindication with Him. Friends, I hope we can see now that rejecting Christ puts you on the wrong side of history because it repeats Israel's rebellion against God. The meaning of the whole Old Testament is that we need God to appoint for us a ruler-redeemer who will save us from the penalty and power of our sins, who will mediate our relationship with God and teach us how to worship and obey Him as he deserves and as he wants. This, this is the religion for which Jesus stands 
because Jesus is that redeemer. But I wonder, is he yours? Let's pray together. Well, Father, we confess that we ourselves are the ones who have held you in contempt by thinking that we can obey you without the imputed righteousness of Jesus, without his sanctifying spirit changing our hearts. We have thought that we could worship you acceptably we just have the right accessories. We have mistaken the feeling of worship for the reality of it. And even as Christians, we have not consistently admitted that we are still in the same need of our ruler, redeemer, Jesus, today and every day as we were the day we met him There will never be a day when we outgrow our need for Jesus as our ruler, redeemer. And there will never be a day when he needs our righteousness added to his to stand us before you. So Lord, forgive us. May we stand for your cause, for your truth, for your righteousness, for your love and mercy. For Jesus' sake, amen.